Um, A.W. Tozier once wrote that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I'm going to say that again. I think it's true. I mean, we, can, we could probably pick that apart and see some limitations in that, I suppose, but I think generally that's true. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Knowing God, the true God, is all important. The prophet Daniel, um, who wrote his prophecy when he was, uh, in per- he was taken as a young boy and in Persia, and he said the people who know their God will be strong and take action. The people who really know God, really, truly know God. Well, um, you probably know this, many of you anyways, Romans 8 has significantly shaped my understanding of God, my understanding of who God is. What comes to my mind when I think about God probably in some way touches, reaches back to Romans 8, certainly not just Romans 8, but um, when I set out to memorize uh, this chapter about 10 years ago, there were a lot of familiar verses I had read dozens of times, maybe even hundreds of times, um, like Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What an amazing truth that is. Or Romans 8.13 and 14, which says, if we live according to the, to the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, really experience life in the Spirit. Or Romans 8, 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Or Romans 8, 28, we all know that one, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and so forth. Romans 8, 31, if we talked about this two weeks ago, if God is for us, who can be against us? All of these things begin to shape who uh, God is, right? Or our understanding of who God is. It doesn't shape who God is, it reveals who God is. Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through um, God who loves us in Christ. And of course, the, last, the very last verse, we know this, nothing, nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These, are, these were familiar paths for me even, bef- even 10 years ago before I, before I said, I want to memorize this chapter. But over the years of meditating on Romans 8, verse 32 has come to hold a peculiar um, place in my understanding of God. It reveals something to us about God that I think really must be central to our understanding, to your understanding, to my understanding of who God is, and central to our understanding of the gospel and really the entire Christian faith. But it's stated in such a way that um, you get the sense that there's, there's a lot of depth underneath. It's not just, and I don't mean that these are trite sayings. They can come across that way. But something like, what do you think about when you think of God? Well, I think God is good. Well, amen. But what's underneath that, right? Or I think that God is loving. Praise God, I do too. What's underneath that? Where, how deep does that go? Is there, is, there, is there a deep foundation to the goodness of God and your understanding of that and the love of God and so forth? Romans 8.32, I think, gives us that, that deep and solid foundation to something monumental about God and our understanding of God. 
Um, Listen to these words again. Mike read it twice. I'm probably going to recite it six or eight times through the message. Maybe you'll have it memorized by the end of our time today. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What does this reveal about God that's so important? Well, we could say a lot of things, but I think to encapsulate all of it, and I want to unpack this this morning, is it shows us the incredible generosity of God. Our God is a God who gives and gives and gives and then gives more. In John chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, it talks about grace and truth has come through him and grace upon grace upon grace has been bestowed upon us through Christ. Our God is a God who gives. The triune God of Scripture, the Father, Son, and Spirit, is a God who is generous, incredibly generous. And this is where the idea of grace comes. God doesn't give us a pinch of grace. For his people, God abounds in grace. The Apostle Paul knew this when he had this thorn in the flesh and he asked God three times, please take this away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And that word sufficient, that word is like, it's, it's, it's all you need. It, I'm going I'm to lavish you with grace and it's going to be more than enough. Our memory text for last week, we covered it in Thursday night, Bible study, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's an amazing verse. That is an amazing truth. The God of glory, the eternal Son of God, was eternally wealthy and became poor, I think pointing to the incarnation and his perfect life under the law and his atoning death and so right is right he became poor as poverty met its climax on the cross no doubt but he became poor so that in him by his poverty we, we might become eternally wealthy now i think this truth of god's generosity god's abounding grace is a good and necessary corrective for those who view God as tight-fisted. And, uh, you know, maybe you'd say, I don't view God as tight-fisted, but I would say this, if you are, and I don't mean with money, I'm not mainly talking about with money, I'm just saying with yourself, and of course with resources and so forth. But if you are tight-fisted, it's probably because you view God that way. Right? This is the view that God is, he's reluctant to give. He may give his children good things, but he does it, reluctantly or he does it if he sees that we have proven ourselves worthy of the gift that he bestows if we ask hard enough or long enough or loud enough or that sort of thing but this ver- this passage shows us that our father gives to his children and gives generously Jesus spoke this way of the father often he said in Luke chapter 12 he said fear not little flock For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. 
Wow. Jesus said this of the Father, if you then, now this is in relation to prayer, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give good things to those who ask him? So our God, our Father, is a a God who gives The most well-known verse in all the Bible, probably throughout the whole world, and maybe it's been this way forever, I don't know, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He gave. And he did it for the world, which means he didn't do it for people who were deserving of it. Because the world does not deserve the great gift of God's love and giving, the giving of his son. So those who here who believe that God is kind of miserly and tight-fisted, listen up. You need to be awakened and encounter the God who gives and does so extravagantly. This verse, I, do, I think, also is a corrective for those who may like to talk about God's gener- generosity, but, but do so untethered to the ground and basis of God's generosity. It's not just that God gives, But his giving is grounded in something, and it's on the basis of something. So it's not like God, he just likes to give us stuff. Kind of like a rich grandfather who likes to spoil his naughty grandkids. He just gives them stuff, right? It's not like that. There's a difference. God is overflowing in generosity, right? He's, He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Like his, his steadfast love, it's like, it's like a pent-up dam just ready to gush forth at any moment. But it's rooted in something. It's based on something. It's grounded in something. And I want you to see that today. So what Paul does in this verse, I think, is, is he, he, he points back to what God has done in the past to demonstrate his immense generosity. And then he shows us how this is the ground and basis for what we can expect from God now and in the future, okay? So listen again and see if you can hear this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, or delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, what Paul does here is he uses what's called an a fortiori argument, okay? Here's what that means. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. It's an argument from the stronger to the weaker, from the greater to the lesser, stronger to the weaker, okay? It's an argument from something greater to something lesser. An example of this argument is, would be if I said something like, um, Mr. Gladwell was happy to let me use his boat last week. I am sure he will let me use his screwdriver today right? He let me use his, use his boat last week, and he did so happily. He didn't do it reluctantly. He did it happily. He did it willingly. No doubt, I need a screwdriver today. He'll let me use that. God did not spare his own son. God did not hold back his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's the greater. That's the greater part. 
How will he not also with his son, with him, graciously, freely, maybe your translation says freely, give us all things? That's the lesser. And we need to understand that. The all things is the lesser. That's not the greater. He delivered up his son for us, for goodness sakes. How will he not also with him give us all of the lesser things? that we need, that are good for us. The language, I think, is interesting. It's in the form of a question. It includes two negatives. It's like a double negative. He did not spare, right? How will he not also with him give us all things? We could turn this around, I think, and make it a positive statement, and I think we would not be injuring Scripture by doing that and say this, God The Father delivered up his own Son for us. Therefore, he most certainly will give us all things with him. That's a big deal. So let's think about this. Let's just kind of go, you know, just kind of work through this verse. God the Father did not spare his own son. The word spare here means to withhold or hold back or to abstain. The Father did not withhold his son. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't restrain his son. He didn't keep him back. This phrase is actually an echo of the words God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 22. And I, I think it's without question that when Paul was inspired to write this, he, he was inspired so that we would think of, about the scene of Abraham and his beloved son, Isaac. It's kind of a strange story, if you're, if you're familiar with it. God, the Lord tells Abraham to take his son and sacrifice him. I remember talking to someone a long time ago, and he, he, got, he was so bent out of shape of the, about this story. Why would God ever do that? And I said, I said, that's not the point of it. It's pointing to something else, right? And that's what we see. So here's what happens. They come to the place of sacrifice, Abraham and Isaac, and here's what Genesis 22 says. And listen for this phrase that sounds like he did not withhold or spare his own son. Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I see that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What's significant about this? Well, Abraham loved Isaac, didn't he? Right? Isaac was the son of promise. He was the son of Abraham's old age, and Sarah's, of course, too. He was the son that brought laughter and joy to Abraham and Sarah. But ultimately, Genesis 22 is not mainly about Abraham and Isaac. And I think that's why Paul echoes those words. It's actually about Romans 8.32. It's about Romans 8.32. God affirmed that Abraham feared him because he did not withhold his only son. And what are we to take away from Romans 8.32? We are to look at the cross and see, or we should see, that the father did not withhold his 
own son, his only begotten son. And by seeing that, by faith, know how deep and profound God's love and grace and outpouring generosity is toward us. We sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love, and it goes like this, the first verse anyways. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Isn't that amazing? How deep the Father's love, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son. Think for a moment about those words, those three words, his own son. He didn't spare his own son. When we think about Abraham and Isaac, the, the love that Abraham had for his, his son Isaac was intense and deep. And if you have children, you know something of that, right? I have six kids. I have four beloved daughters I love with all my heart. I have two dear sons I love dearly. I know the intensity of a love for a child. But Abraham's love for Isaac, my love for my children, pale in comparison with the father's love for his own son. The love that the father had for his son from all eternity. You and I are sons and daughters of God by adoption, but Christ is the eternally begotten son. He's been the son of his father for all of eternity, and they have been in fellowship, in perfect communion, and lived in harmony and love forever. And they've never had the barrier of sin that we have in our relationships. Even the best of relationships, because we're still a work in progress, right, we are, are you too? Okay. We, we still are a work in progress, and so there's still sin that messes things up. Well, God the Father and Son, of course, never had that. In John 17, 24, Jesus said to the Father in his prayer, he said, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And yet the Father did not withhold his own Son, He didn't withhold him. He didn't hold him back. Think of every parent. Now, of course, there's kind of this phenomenon now. It's called the helicopter parents. Or You guys ever heard that before? Or the, is it the snowplow parent or something? You know, um, and that's not good. We don't want to be those kinds of parents that remove all obstacles from our kids. But every loving parent wants to spare their children from painful experiences. You know, I, I lived a reckless and very wicked life for a portion of my life. I don't want my kids to go through that. I want to spare them from that. I want to withhold them from going through that. God the Father did not spare his own son from great pain and suffering. Instead of withholding him, what did he do? He gave him up for us all. Unlike Abraham and Isaac, God the Father, not withholding his son, didn't stop short of sacrifice, right? Uh, Abraham was about ready to slay his son and he was stopped, right? He didn't have to go through with sacrificing him. With the Father, not withholding his own son, it didn't mean that Christ was not sacrificed 
In fact, it led to it. It required it. it. That was the point of it. If the father had withheld his son, the withholding would have meant Christ didn't go to the cross and we would be lost. So the father gave him up for us all. Now there's a lot in this phrase and I just want, I want to look, just look at a couple of things. First, the phrase he gave him up or maybe your translation if you have the New American Standard says delivered him up. This communicates the father's action in the crucifixion, okay? This communicates what the father was doing in the crucifixion. We often think of, when we, when we talk about the crucifixion, we think of the Jewish people's envy of Christ, and that's right, they were, they were envious. Or the Roman soldiers' brutality, and of course that's true as well. Or we think of Judas's traitorous betrayal, no doubt that's part of the story. Uh, or we think of Pilate's spineless expediency. We think of these, these different players in what led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All of that's true. All of these people had their part, and they did so of their own accord without being coerced. And yet, they were also carrying out the Father's plan. Right? They were carrying out the Father's plan. And ultimately, what we see in our passage this morning is that it was the Father who delivered up the Son to the cross. The Father gave his Son up to be crucified. There's no better place to see this confirmed, I think, than the beautiful prophecy in Isaiah 53. We see this language unpacked for us. 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, it was prophesied that someone called the servant of the Lord, we know him to be Christ, the suffering servant, very clearly talking about him. I want to read a chunk of this, but just emphasize a couple of verses to make this point. Here's what Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Listen to this. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears, silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen to this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You hear that? Maybe you heard before, it's like there all these other players doing things. They made his grave with the wicked, right? There was oppression, there was judgment against Christ, and yet, above it all, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God the Father delivered up his son to suffer and die on the cross. Now this is so important that we understand this, that it was God himself doing this. Here's why. Many religions say they have gods that need to be pacified, need to be appeased, right? And so people do things to appease their gods. They sacrifice. They whip themselves. They sacrifice a a bull or a goat or a pigeon or a child to bribe their god. But the point is that the gods have have to be pacified or have to be appeased. In Christianity, it's God himself who undertakes to satisfy his own wrath. And he did that in the sending of his son to the cross. Listen to the words of 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Where do you get your, you know, everyone talks about love. What is love? 1 John 4.10 tells us. Not that we love God, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation here means a sacrifice that removes wrath. The father sent his son. He delivered up his son to be that sacrifice in his death on the cross that then removes wrath. How did it remove wrath? Because Christ took it upon himself. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, I think it should be noted, there was an article that came out about 10 years ago. I can't remember where it was at. Maybe it was in Christianity Today, which is... (laughs) Shows you maybe where, why Christianity today is where it is today, <laughs> which is not in a good place. Um, but it was written by a man, I can't remember the guy's name, I'm not, this is off the top of my head, but it was a man who had denied the teaching I'm putting forward today. Okay? The teaching uh, that, that the cross is um, God's uh, work of punishing sin in Christ called penal substitutionary atonement. Ever heard that phrase before? Okay. And this man denied that. He said, this is ridiculous. That teaching reveals God to be a divine child abuser. Well, I hope you, and I, I hope you can just kind of laugh that off too, but I do think it's worth noting that though the Father delivered Jesus up to the cross, and he did, he did, Jesus wasn't forced to go against his will. But he went of his own accord as well. There's perfect harmony between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in all the work of redemption. The same language is used of the Son in Galatians 2.20. The Apostle Paul said that Jesus gave himself for me. Can you say that? He gave himself, Paul said, for me. 
In Ephesians 5.25, in this passage that's often, you know, talked about at a wedding, it's, it's ultimately about Christ and the church. It says that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus himself in John 10 said this, I lay my life down for the sheep. So the father delivered him up, and yet Jesus says, I laid my life down. He goes on to say, to say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So which is it? Did the father give him up, or did Christ lay it down of his own accord? It is both, brothers and sisters. It is both. The father gave him up, and Christ laid his life down down and he did this for us all in a commentary in a commentary many years ago i I read um i read a quote by a, a, a theologian from the i think the early 20th century named carl bart and i don't really have any of his stuff but he was quoted in this commentary and i thought this was really insightful he uh carl bart said the 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 most important word in the new testament is the Greek word huper, which can be translated for, or on behalf of, or in place of. And that's what we see here. God the Father did not withhold his own son, didn't hold him back, didn't spare him, but gave him up for, or in the place of, us. That's what the cross is. It's this substitution. Jesus Christ took our place. He took your place. He took what you and I deserved on the cross. So, what do we see here? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Freely give us all things. Remember, the argument is from the greater to the lesser. The Father gave his Son to die for us in our place, for our sins, bearing the wrath we deserve. That's the greater. The gift of Christ is the greater. Are we all in agreement on that? It is the greater. Doesn't get better than that. I get concerned that some think, yeah, yeah, like Christians, you know, professing Christians, yeah, 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 I know all that stuff. I know Jesus died for me. But what I really want is that other stuff. Now, the stuff's included, but I think that's all wrong. The triumphant note is struck on the greater. He gave us his son. And I think, I think when, we're, when we're just dumbfounded by what he's given us, we will be like, well, of course he'll give me everything else I need. He gave me his son. Of course he will. What's he going to withhold if he didn't withhold his son? There are two words in, that se- in the second part of our verse that I think are often overlooked, and it's the two words, with him. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I think the most Im- 
um, it, it's like this. All the other blessings come with him. In and through and with Christ. Jesus Christ given for us is the gift that brings with him every other gift. He's the blessing that guarantees all the others. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 that says, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him, which is why we utter amen. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so as believers, we ought to, we ought to live with this overwhelming sense that our Father, had, who is eternally wealthy, has lavished riches upon us. Grace upon grace upon grace. Mater- spiritual blessings primarily, but then also just all of, the, all of the things that he gives us in and with Christ. Now, I, I can hear s- s- some people who wouldn't say this out loud, but might be thinking, well, gosh, I mean, I've sought God for certain things for a long time, and I've, he hasn't given them to me. And I think there's a few reasons why that might be the case. It might be because we're asking for wrong things. It might be because we want things that are not good for us. Is that possible? <clears throat> is that at least possible? Yeah, it is, right? <clears throat> My son Grayson, <sighs> he was introduced to candy recently, and he wants a lot of candy. And he doesn't sleep well when he gets candy. Alyssa's like pulling her hair out. Why did you guys give him candy? And so, that's not good for him. It could also be because, you know, so that, that could be one reason why we're not like, what about these all things? It could be because of that. It could be because, um, it could be because God wants to train us to understand that, that we've received the greater, to love the greater. He's given us Christ to glory in that. To just be astounded. We sang about it earlier. Amazing love. How can it be that our God died for us? There's a song. We haven't sung it for a long time. I can't remember the name of it, but I was thinking of it this morning. But there's the first part of it says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Are you just astounded by the love and grace of God for you? So that could be another reason. He wants to train us to love the greater. He's got all, he will give us all things in Christ. No doubt he will. How will he not? But here's another thing. here's, Here's another reason. Is God not only knows what's best for us, but he knows when it's best to give us things. 
And I think that's just important to keep in mind. In, in all of this, like, the, the, again, the note is struck on, he didn't withhold his son. He most certainly will give all things to his children with his son. So, is there any limitation to these words, all things? Well, I suppose the only limitation would be that it's, uh, that God will limit what he gives to us based on what is good. He will bestow every good thing to complete his redeeming work in our lives. He will give us every good thing that we need to carry out his will and work of advancing his mission and kingdom in the world. I mean, he will give us all of these things. How could he not? He's given us his son. And all these good things we need will come in and with and through his son. So how do we know the loving generosity of God? How do we know the God who overflows in grace, who abounds in steadfast love? How do we know that he will give us everything we need in the future? Well, we look to the cross. We look to the cross and we say, now, Father, now I know that you love us and will be gracious to us and give us all that we need because you did not withhold your own son from us. Well, there's a saying that uh, you, you, some of the kids are like, I've never heard that before, but I think my kids have. The proof is in the pudding. Ever heard that before? Huh, Lindley? Okay, no? Um, anyways, anyone, you know, 30 and up probably has. Um, the proof is in the pudding. How, how do you know if you really know the overflowing graciousness and generosity of God. Now, this, we're all, again, we're all, at diff- we're all a work in progress, so I don't want to make it sound like perfectly all of these things. But I do want to just, just lay out a few things for just application this morning. How do we know if, if this is our experience? Or how would, it, how would we um, wear adorn this kind of um, understanding of God? I just have three things, and we could go on and on at this point, but three things very briefly. The first is trust. The first is trust, right? It's it's a, he's for me, right? Verse 31, which is right before verse 32. (laughs) Um, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's trust that he is for us. He is truly for us. It is a settled trust. And quite frankly, I don't know if there's anything that may be needed more. The kind of trust that, um, is it the Proverbs, is it the Proverbs 31, the woman that it says she looks, she laughs at the future or something like that? Is that right? Um, the kind of trust that just looks at the future and is unafraid and just laughs. And I think we need that. Because, I don't know if you've noticed, but 
you know, the world's on fire right now. And you have battles, personal battles, and so do I. But if we understood the God who says, I've given my son for you, I will give you everything you need, then I think we could say, I can settle in God and be unshaken by what's going on around us. We can be like Mount Zion, right? Those who trust the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. So it's just trust. There's a story, I don't think I've said this recently, but if I have, forgive me. Um, there's a story, uh, Corey Tenboom tells a story <clears throat> of, you know, Corey and her sister and father were hiding Jews in their home in Holland when uh, the Germans had occupied during World War II. <clears throat> and there came this time where they were getting more and more concerned that they were going to get caught. <clears throat> they realized, okay, a lot of people in town know what we're doing. That's probably not good. So just to, just, you know, sooner or later, the Nazis will find out too and we'll, we'll, we'll get caught. And um, Corey expresses her fear and goes to her father and says, um, what if we get caught? And her father said, well, well, certainly that could happen. We could get caught and put in prison or executed. That could happen. And Corey says, well, how will we have the strength to, um, I know I'm kind of paraphrasing this, forgive me. Will we have the strength to endure? And her father said, we will. Corey's like, How? And her father, Casper, says, well, Corey, when, I, when we go to uh, Amsterdam, when do I give you money for the train? And Corey says, right before we get on the train, just when I need it. And her father, very wisely, I mean, I, sa- I said when I first read this, I'm stealing that <laughs> for my kids. Her father very wisely said, and that is just how our father is. He knows what we need, when we need it, and he'll give us everything we need at just the right time. And so I think we can trust God, right? He didn't withhold his own son. He has lavished his grace upon us in Christ, and he will give us everything, 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 all things with Christ. And we can trust that he'll give us those things just when we need it, need them. Here's another Uh, Here's something else that I think this truth, another way it impacts us. It impacts our prayers, I think. Um, Do you pray? uh, Do you pray to a God who is open-handed and large-hearted and ready to bestow blessings upon you? Or do you pray to a God, I mean, to a God who's kind of tight-fisted and may be listening, may not be. And you got to pry things out of his hand. I think if we understood God is abounding in steadfast love, I think it would change our prayers. That we come to a, 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 a father who is generous. Remember what I said earlier, well, what Jesus said, Luke 12, <clears throat> it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If you being evil know how to give good gifts, I love giving good gifts to my children. How much 
more will your Father give what is good? And I think in our prayers, we ought to err on the side. I I mean, I'm not saying we want to use wisdom. We certainly want our prayers to be tethered to Scripture, all of that. But I think we ought to err on the side of presumption in our prayers, asking for too much instead of asking for very little. Or quite frankly, asking for nothing at all. Our God is generous. And finally, if we understood God to be abounding in generous graciousness toward us, um, we would give of ourselves, first to God and then to other people. First to God, of course, unreservedly giving ourselves to God. Paul described his life as being poured out as a drink offering. Right? His life was poured out. And of course, his life was poured out unto God. It was poured out on behalf of others. We would give of ourselves to God and to others, and we would do so without reservation more and more. And of course, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like you would do this perfectly. If you, we would, you would grow in this. We would grow in this. We would be large-hearted, not kind of close-hearted, toward others. And, you know, um, as a dad, and of course this would apply to mothers too in the home with children and grandparents and all of that, as a, as a father, as a dad to my kids, and I, I have a lot of room to grow, but one thing I want my kids to know is that their father, their dad, their father in heaven especially, but their dad is large-hearted toward them. And to the degree that I'm able, I bless them. I want to do that. We should want to do that. We should want to reflect our Father in heaven and do that well. And of course, moms, the same with your kids. And then all of us in, you know, in the body, with friends and family, Thanksgiving coming up, Christmas coming up. What if this year we just had this huge vision of God abounding in blessing toward his people. Do you think that would change how we do holidays? It probably would. Well, for some, for some anyways, it probably would. And so, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen? Let's pray.